Our New Testament reading is from 1 Corinthians 14. What then, what then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation or a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the Lord of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, well that was an interesting passage, and no one left, so at least I didn't see anyone take off, so that's good. Um, We just finished our uh, series on our core values, and we're embarking on a two-sermon series that I believe is an application of our core values, um, particularly core value two, welcome into community, that Jesus extended a radical welcome to everyone. We therefore extend welcome to the same people he did. In town seeks to be a safe place to belong, to doubt, to fail, and to grow. We're trying to create a a safe community in which we can have meaningful and engaging and grace-centered conversations with one another over potentially controversial matters. And I think you probably saw the potentially controversial matter in the middle part of what Katie read. And we want to do this in such a way not to win a debate, not to come out on top, not to have our side prevail, but in order to meet one another in these conversations and to grow in a way that it's better understanding not only the Bible, but who Jesus is, the very center of the Bible. This is a a very difficult but nurturing task. And this provides us with the opportunity to know the Bible better, to know Jesus better as we listen to other perspectives that perhaps we hadn't considered before, and it gives us a specific context to extend that welcome to one another, even when we don't have 100% agreement. Now, I was reviewing my notes this morning, and I thought, why are my hands getting clammy, and why am I sweating 
oh, it's because we're talking about this week and next week one of the two most controversial, most divisive verses or passages in the whole New Testament. And I want you guys to like me. (laughs) I want you to agree with me. And most of you probably will, but there will be some that this will probably bump up against your preconceptions and bump up against parts of your theology in a, a way that might be uncomfortable. But I want us to learn to have these conversations because it, what, what's at the center of in town, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, is so compelling and so binding and so unifying that even when we disagree around the edges and in secondary, tertiary matters, that we can still stay in community with one another and extend welcome. So we're going to do two sermons on this series this week, and then next week we'll look at 2 Timothy uh, 2, verses, verse 12. And then the following week, we'll start Advent, where we don't have to talk about anything controversial. So you can look forward to that. I look forward to that. But let me pray for us as we get started. Father, I pray that in what could be a difficult text, what is a difficult text, that you would help us to find a way to not just see a solution to a difficult issue, not just to reach a conclusion, but to find you, to see you, to find you speaking to us, even through texts that seem to be uh, devoid of you and your gospel. I pray that we would see that even here in difficult places that you show up and you speak to us. And Father, I pray that we would be willing to go to those uncomfortable spaces where we reconsider things that maybe we've held to be uh, true with great conviction. I pray that you would help us to open ourselves up to the truth wherever it would lead. Father, I pray that would be true for not only those of us who are Christians here this morning, but if we're looking in from the outside, if we are surprised to find ourselves in a church this morning, if we're looking for answers, I pray that you would step into our story even through this text. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this text is, or this sermon rather, is a little bit different. It's going to be a little bit more teachy rather than preachy a little bit more of a lecture type of format than probably what we're used to. It's going to be a deep exegetical dive into really just a couple of verses here. And for some of you, this is going to be thrilling. You love Bible study, and you love getting out tools, and you love looking at words and context and so forth. And others, it's going to be a little bit overwhelming, and it's going to stretch your muscles a little bit. But I hope that all of you will stay with me because what we're trying to do here is not simply, as I said, reach a conclusion, but we're trying to learn to read the Bible better. And there's going to be a number of sort of exegetical hermeneutics, that is the how do we interpret the Bible. There's going to be a lot of those principles that are embedded in this sermon that I think will help us to get to a a more mature place of understanding, studying, and reading the Bible. Now, one of these principles is that we allow Scripture to interpret itself. And in a 25-minute setting, we don't have the time to build out that picture of how 
did women operate in the Old Testament? How did women uh, serve and lead in prophetic roles and in speaking roles and in leadership roles to help us to interpret this passage? You're supposed to look at difficult passages, those that are less than clear, and then say, well, are there other places in Scripture that speak to this issue in a more direct way that I can use to interpret this particularly difficult passage? And we simply don't have time to do that this morning. However, in the Q&A, I'm going to give you a a handout that sort of details the way that the Bible has talked about women, different ways that they have served, and hopefully draw for you, and I won't have time to discuss it this morning, but I will give it to you, and we'll talk about it next time in our Q&A, but talk about this redemptive arc of Scripture and how this picture of how women are treated and how women come to serve begins to develop in this redemptive arc, and it be- operates in very countercultural ways, especially considering the context of the Bible rising up in this very patriarchal, very hierarchical culture. So what we're doing here this morning is, is sort of not operating by that very important principle of letting the cl- unclear passages be interpreted by the clear. We're asked here to dive right into the middle of 1 Corinthians and interpret uh, the tree rather than understanding the forest that would help us to understand what kind of tree this is. So, um, so anyway, we'll talk about that a little bit more. But what I want us to do is to conclude, um, if we conclude from this text that women aren't supposed to speak in church and to be silent, and that was what was read it seemed very clear, then how does this not pit Paul against other places in the Bible where women are speaking prophetically? Women are dreaming dreams and have them interpreted. Women are praying in churches. And how does it not pit Paul, if we just go by the plain, literal reading of the text, how does it not pit Paul against himself? So it's not just those of us who would want to see women be able to serve and lead in all capacities of the church who have a problem with this text. All of us have a problem. Think about this with me. As long as I've been at In Town, before we moved into a different denomination where women are allowed to serve in all capacities, we have always had women speaking in church. We've always had women to come up here and pray extemporaneously. We don't tell them to sit down and ask your husband at home. Why is that? Well, there's a difficult answer, complicated answer to that, but I want you to see because we're going to get to that in a second. But if we can take this verse, this passage, completely at face value, we're already out of alignment with it. So it's a problem for those of us who would want to extend and elevate women to all versions of leadership, all places of leadership, but also those who want to take a more restrictive view, because it seems like it's only the most fundamentalist churches that restrict women from speaking at all, and that's what Paul says here. So we need to deal with this. What are some potential solutions? Well, I want to suggest four, and a couple of them are not good ones, but I want to share them with you. One is we could just ignore it. We could ignore what Uh, verses 34 and 35 says. Skip over it, excise it, take our red pen out, 
and just don't teach on it, with no justification other than, well, the times have changed, and we don't do this outside of the church. Why should we do it in here? Let's make it more palatable. This is regressive. This is harmful to women. It's harmful to the, many, the mission of the church. And I'm sympathetic to these motives because it certainly would be easier for those who want women to serve equally in the ministry of the church, just like they do in our everyday experience in all other places in our society. But this is a hermeneutic that's ripe for abuse. Because if we can just say, just ignore this, well then, what are the other unpalatable things that the Bible says that we can just take our red pen out and say, nope, I don't like that one, or in a Jeffersonian way, just cut it out of the Bible. There's not going to be much left because there's so many parts of the Bible that are offensive, so many parts of the Bible that are difficult to understand, so many parts of the Bible that challenge us in ways that we want, don't want to be challenged and don't fit our current cultural norms. Well, I want us to be a church that doesn't just ignore things in the Bible, but I also don't want to disqualify half the church based solely on gender from serving in leadership capacities. I want us to get there not in spite of the Bible, but because of it. Now, maybe you're thinking, how is that possible given this passage? Well, one, we could ignore it. Secondly, we could just Talk about women being silenced, but in a qualified way, in a limited sort of way. It's not universal. There are different places, different contexts that women could speak. There are different kinds of meetings and different kinds of teaching. And so we would allow women to read Scripture, lead prayers, sing hymns, but you couldn't teach authoritatively from the pulpit. And that's the position that we have been in in our other denominational context And this is the option for those who want to maintain a high view of Scripture but also don't want to be seen as patriarchal or fundamentalist. And so what you have is you see churches that might invite someone like Joni Erickson Tata to come speak, this fascinating woman who has a lot to say, a biblical scholar, or bring someone like Elizabeth Elliot to come and speak to your church, but you call it a message. You don't call it a sermon. Or you remove the pulpit from the stage. I'm not kidding. This has happened, and it happens frequently. I think this is a conservative version of just ignore it. It's special pleading because these distinctions aren't made in the text. You're bringing in outside factors into the text and and making qualifications that aren't there. It says that women shouldn't be silent just in the pulpit, but silent in general. Universal, okay? Women should be silent, period. Okay, that's the second one. Ignore it or be silent in a qualified sense, which is another version of ignoring the totality of what the verse means. Now, thirdly, and I think this is where it gets a little bit more interesting, is that we could say And I think there's reason to say that this particular, these two verses are what's called a scribal interpolation. Now, that's a fancy, nerdy seminary way of saying that verses 34 and 35 were not in the original text. They were not in the original manuscript. Now, 
we should be careful here because like option one, this is a possibility for abuse as well because when we get to something we don't like, we say, well, maybe that just wasn't in the original text. Someone added it later so we can ignore it. But I think if we're going to make this, uh, this argument, it should be done based upon strong evidence and not just wishful thinking. Now, stick with me here because this is a bit of Bible nerdery, but I think it's important. The Bible that you hold in your hands, well, let's just pretend for a moment. No one brings a Bible to in-town. But if you were holding a Bible in your hands, um, when those translators set out to write the Bible, this interpretation, so the NIV or the NASB or the ESV, when they were sitting around in these committee rooms, they didn't just walk down to the library and grab the original copy of 1 Corinthians that Paul wrote. Those copies do not exist anywhere. Instead, they would have to look at dozens of manuscripts, which are copies of copies of copies sometimes, and then compare them to one another to see what is likely to be the original, what is likely to be the best representation of what Paul actually wrote. It could be decades before. And so when you find a text that's duplicated across multiple manuscripts over many geographical areas, you can be more confident that the copies are faithful to the original. And I don't want to undermine your confidence in the Bible that you actually hold, because for most of the Bible, the manuscripts agree to a significant uh, degree. And the Bible is trustworthy, but there are some places in the Bible that have different things, because humans copying these by hand over many decades and many centuries sometimes make a mistake, believe it or not. And so you have to go back and say, which are the most trustworthy? Where is there the greatest coherence? That's likely to be the passage that Paul wrote. Sometimes you're working with fragments. Sometimes you're working with manuscripts that have parts of the letter at different places than they actually show up in your Bible, okay? And that's actually the case, believe it or not, with verses 34 through 35, in the earliest manuscripts, they didn't show up where they, where they show up. They showed up after verse 40. And there's a reason for that because one scholar says these completely interrupt the flow of Paul's argument if they are placed there. And so a scribe potentially later wrote it in the margins of this in hopes to make it cohere with other parts of the Bible, such as 1 Timothy 2. As a Greek scholar, this guy's name is Phil Payne, and he's not the only one making this argument, but he says that there's no way these fit between 33 and 36. They destroy the logical flow of the argument, which is speaking about tongues and about prophecy. Now, I'll spare you going too much more deeply into this, because he wrote an article that was about 30 or 40 pages about this one thing, and I read them all. I even understood some of it. But what he is trying to do, he is a, actually a conservative biblical scholar. He is trying to make the Bible cohere, and he's trying to allow the Bible to be internally, consi- in, internally consist- consistent, and he finds that these verses there don't, are not consistent. Now, this very, sounds very complicated, but it's not that novel or unusual. 
if you did have your Bible with you, I think Jason Downing's here. You can borrow his. He weighs about 12 pounds. Um, if you looked up a couple of places in Scripture, if you turn to Mark 16, or if you turn to John 7, you would find footnotes at the bottom of the page that said, this passage is not in the oldest or most trustworthy manuscripts. So what Phil Payne is doing here isn't trying to excise a text that he finds offensive. He's trying to figure out a solution to a very difficult problem, an apparent contradiction. Well, a contradiction to what? Well, you don't have to go very far. You just go back three chapters In chapter 11, Paul is talking about praying and prophesying in the assembly. This is in the church, and he presumes that women are doing these things. That's not being silent. That's not asking your husband at home. How could he say just three chapters earlier that women should be praying and prophesying in church and then say, in chapter 14, that they should be completely silent. That is a contradiction. And if we think about this passage and we allow it to stand, it's in contradiction to Paul just three chapters earlier. This was probably added later. It's not a slam dunk, and I'll grant you that, but it's better than Paul arguing with himself and contradicting himself within three chapters. Okay, so I hope you're still with me. That was a difficult point, point three. One, we can ignore it. Two, we can qualify it or modify it to fit only in certain contexts. Thirdly, we can de-emphasize it because it's not Pauline and maybe added later. But fourth, and I think this is probably the best solution, is that we situate it. We situate it in the redemptive arc of Scripture. Now, last week, as we were doing the Q&A, we talked about this example of slavery and how the story of the Bible includes, in the Old Testament, basically an affirmation of slaveholding. And then in, in the New Testament, you have four passages that regulate slavery, but they don't completely undermine it directly. 1 Peter, 1 Timothy, Ephesians, and Colossians all talk about slavery in a regulated way. So it's very different. It's very controversial. It's, it's uh, undermined to some degree, but not directly. It's very difficult, in other words, to build a slam-dunk case against slavery if you're just looking for the one proof text that says, slavery should be abolished for here and forever after. It is wrong, it's evil, and oppressive. But there is change, you see. There's change from the way that the Bible talks about it in one context, in this redemptive movement, this trajectory that the Bible sets up. And the way it talks about it in the New Testament, there are seeds, seeds of insurrection all throughout the Bible. We talked about this huge, expansive passage last week in Galatians 3, that because of the gospel, because Jesus has come, there is therefore no longer Jew and Gentile. There's no longer slave and free. There's no longer male and female. And abolitionists later would look at that passage and say, here, this is where we find the reason to throw off this terrible institution 
we see Jesus and throughout the Bible talking through the Bible consistently talking about the love of neighbor that we are to elevate our neighbors above ourselves. So how could we then look at someone and say, I can own you as property? Completely inconsistent. It doesn't directly address the institution of slavery, but it does undermine it. We see in Genesis 3, at the very beginning, where it says God made male and female in His image. That is, everyone holds the image of God And so to treat someone as a slave, to oppress them, is completely inconsistent with the way that God has made man and female. Now, these larger themes, rather than individual texts, were marshaled by biblically-minded abolitionists, but it took 1,700, 1,800 years for them to get to that position to say slavery definitively is wrong and oppressive and evil. And it wasn't just pulling out the concordance and proof texting it. It was looking at the seeds of the Bible, the larger themes. The gospel of Jesus makes slavery completely untenable. In other words, it was essential to reading the Bible to to know the forest rather than just the problematic text, the trees. And no serious student of the Bible would think today of making a case for slavery. By quoting any of those four New Testament passages, we seem to intuitively understand that those passages were highly situational. Now, why are we able to situate the slave subordination text within this larger redemptive arc that undermines them, but not do this very same thing with the women subordination text that come in the very same letters. We also do this with texts that tell us that women should wear short hair or braided hair or gold jewels. So by the way, if you don't believe that women can lead or preach but your wife braids her hair, we might have a problem. (laughs) How are we so easily... How, we, how do we do that so intuitively to say, well, no, this is clearly cultural situational, but then we have a larger problem with other places. Now, let me say that preventing women from serving in formal leadership roles is not the same thing as enslaving another person. But the hermeneutical move by which virtually all Christians relativize the texts that call for slaves to obey their masters is remarkably similar to the hermeneutical move that is required to understand the gender subordination commands differently. So let me conclude, because I want you, again, not to just reach a conclusion, but I want you to walk out into the world with faith and hope and love and for you to understand the redemptive arc of Scripture that we're talking about. I want you to see the forest for the trees. The Bible doesn't just give us information. It doesn't just give us propositional statements of theology. It doesn't just give us rules and regulations, but it tells us the story of God reaching into the world in the person of Jesus Christ with grace and with mercy. We don't get into the kingdom of God based upon socially constructed hierarchies. We don't 
get into the kingdom because of our position in the world, because we are white, because we are male. We get into the kingdom because of the grace and mercy of God. We get into because of a crucified Messiah. And we all share equally in His grace and His mercy. The means by which we enter into the body of Christ is the same exact means by which we differentiate ourselves. It is the grace of God poured out in a variety of gifts. We are differentiated by gifts and calling, not by gender and social hierarchy. A friend of mine who is a New Testament scholar says, and I want to read just a a passage that I think helps bring this home. This is the gospel story that calls us to make good on what we catch glimpses of in the New Testament. When we read of women as co-workers of Jesus and Paul, as a deacon, as an apostle, these are in Romans 16. When we read of women speaking and praying and prophesying in public worship, this is 1 Corinthians 11. When we read of women transcending social mores in order to follow Jesus in His ministry, think of Mary and Martha and Martha sitting at the feet of Jesus as a disciple. This was completely unheard of. When we read of women being entrusted with the task of bearing witness to the resurrection, think of the Easter stories. In each of these moments, we're catching glimpses of a new creation in which there is no hierarchical distinction between male and female. It is not a vision that is worked out consistently in the first century culture in which the New Testament writings grew up, but it is one that fits within the plot of a story that turns all social hierarchies on their head as God comes to rule the world through a crucified Messiah. And he says, this is the first reason why I believe that the inclusive, more egalitarian voices of the New Testament demands our allegiance in contemporary settings because it does a better justice to the gospel story. The continuing hierarchy of men over women, of anyone over another, is the result not of God's good creation, but it is a result of the fall. And Jesus' new creation says, no, we are united, we are made one apart from our social value, our standing in the world. We are included not because of our societal worth, but because Jesus looks upon each of us and says, yes, Jesus leaves the comforts of heaven and descends to become the slave to all. He comes and He sits under us and lifts us up. He becomes a slave to all to end our spiritual slavery. God becomes weak in order to rescue the fallen. He goes to a cross to save the least and the lost and the last. That is you and me. And that overturns all the ways that we think about social hierarchy. And we have to say, no, we are united in the gospel, and we share equally in it, brothers 
and sisters. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I pray that you would be with us as we take on this difficult task of talking together and thinking together and looking over these texts. And I pray that you would give us a spirit of generosity and a spirit of hope and a spirit of mercy and a spirit that is quick to listen and slow to speak. Father, I pray that you would heal division in our church, that you would heal division in the church. And Father, we would look at each other, especially as we come to the table, and see that which binds us together and not that which divides us. Father, we pray that you would do this in a real way, in a tangible way, in a visible way in our church. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.